Hello, everyone. Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading organization defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There is more information on the website, womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our declaration on women's sex-based rights, which has been signed by 31,735 people from 159 countries and is supported by 446 organizations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts engaged in defending women's rights. This week, we have Laura Lecuona from Mexico. She's going to tell us about her group, WDI Mexico, and she will explain the consolidation of a volunteer team. She will tell us about the launch of her YouTube channel and also about the work they are doing. We will have also Gioia Virgilio from Italy. She will talk about women in sport and the importance of, gen of a gender analysis. She will explain uh, what, we uh, what we understood by gender analysis and briefly illustrate the path conducted from 2018 to 2021 at the Feminist Association Orlando in Bologna, Italy, with a collective work through comparisons between athletes, coaches, journalists, teachers, and non-sports women practitioners. Finally, we'll have Maureen O'Hara from the UK, and she will present her latest article on gender identity theories capture of criminal justice institutions in England and Wales. Uh, Laura Lecorna is, uh, she's our own um, WGDI, um, the Women's Declaration International Country Contact for Mexico, and she is a feminist communicator. She is currently writing a book on the harms and fallacies of transgenderism. So over to you, Laura. Eh, voy a hablarles de lo que hacemos en WDI México y cómo hemos consolidado un equipo de voluntarias. Este mes, el capítulo mexicano de la Declaración Internacional de las Mujeres cumplió un año de ser activo en redes sociales, concretamente en Twitter, Facebook, Instagram y ahora también en YouTube. Para festejarlo, el 2 de junio hicimos una presentación especial de la Declaración sobre los Derechos de las Mujeres Basados en el Sexo en la que cada uno de los artículos fue explicado y ejemplificado por una voluntaria. Adi, Adriana, Anaís, Elisa, Mónica, Sandra, Raimunda, Vanessa y Laura hablamos de sendos artículos y mostramos cómo la misoginia transgenerista en México está muy activa. Prácticamente todos los artículos de la declaración se pudieron ejemplificar con algún caso mexicano y para algunos teníamos más de un ejemplo. Solo nos faltó encontrar alguno de un hombre usurpando lugares de mujeres en deportes, pero no tarda en llegar. Y todos los demás artículos se refieren a derechos de las mujeres basados en el sexo, que en México ya se ven amenazados por la ideología de la identidad de género y es indispensable defender. Fue muy conmovedor el hecho de que en la celebración del 2 de junio, todas las participantes nos presentamos abiertamente con la cámara encendida a pesar de que en un principio algunas se mostraban temerosas o reticentes y querían cubrirse parte del rostro. Cuando estábamos planeándola, hablamos de la importancia de que cada vez más mujeres salgan del closet abolicionista del género y no se dejen intimidar por los chantajes y la violencia de los transactivistas. Creemos que mientras más mujeres estemos allá afuera resistiéndonos a las políticas de la identidad de género, más y más mujeres se nos irán uniendo y se sobrepondrán a los miedos y se atreverán a hablar y más pronto acabará este delirio. Al final, todas decidimos que queríamos, al dar la cara, dar el ejemplo. Actualmente nuestro equipo está integrado por 14 voluntarias de 7 entidades de la República. Ciudad de México, Estado de México, Guadalajara, Monterrey, Puebla, Querétaro y Yucatán todas comprometidísimas con WDI y los derechos de las mujeres basados en el sexo. Muy generosamente ponen tiempo y talento al servicio de la causa feminista. Tenemos formaciones y procedencias muy distintas, edades variadas y diferentes habilidades. Gracias a eso, hemos logrado hacer una repartición del trabajo muy sensata y hemos logrado hacer muchas cosas. Hablaré de algunas de ellas. 
algo que nos importa muchísimo es adquirir una sólida formación teórica feminista. A esa inquietud responde nuestro esporádico círculo de lectura. Por algunas temporadas nos hemos reunido cada 15 días para comentar libros feministas. Leímos juntas, por ejemplo, Gender Hurts, el género daña de Sheila Jeffries. Ahora tenemos el plan de extender este círculo de lectura en modalidad virtual a más firmantes de la declaración, no necesariamente voluntarias de WDI México. Y vamos a iniciar con el mismo El Género Daña. Nosotras encantadas de releerlo. Tenemos la suerte de que ya está disponible en español, tanto en formato físico como electrónico, publicado por la editorial feminista radical independiente Lápiz. Es sin duda un libro fundamental que explica con toda claridad la embestida transgenerista que estamos padeciendo y da claves para la resistencia. Si entre las firmantes que nos escuchan ahora hay alguna interesada en integrarse a este círculo de lectura, puede escribir a mexico.org. Voy a poner en este momento el, la dirección en el chat. Hablando de libros, una de nuestras primeras actividades en Instagram y Facebook fue lanzar un concurso abierto a firmantes de la Declaración Residentes en México. Mi libro feminista. Las concursantes debían poner una foto creativa de su libro feminista preferido y la que más likes obtuvo en cada una de estas redes por separado se llevó de premio un ejemplar de, por supuesto, el género de También como parte de nuestra formación hemos tenido algunas sesiones entre nosotras para hablar sobre la importancia fundamental del lenguaje en esta lucha. Material presentado en distintos webinarios de WDI como muy concretamente la conferencia de Julia Long en el lanzamiento de WDI Alemania, ha sido básico para esto. En general, estos webinarios sabatinos son una fantástica herramienta para nuestra preparación y para la de cualquier feminista, la verdad. Y para contribuir a la formación teórica de otras feministas y fomentar el diálogo entre mujeres, el primer, me el primer jueves de cada mes tenemos un live de Facebook con conversatorios feministas, en los que cada vez participa alguna o varias de nosotras y en ocasiones tenemos invitadas especiales. Hemos tenido a Elisa Melgarejo hablando del libro Beauty and Misogyny de Sheila Jeffries, a Sandra Peredo y Adriana Buenrostro hablando de la captura institucional por parte de grupos de presión transgeneristas, a Yadira del Mar reflexionando sobre el 8M, a Arusiunda de Brujas del Mar dar una charla sobre la exclusión de las mujeres en nombre de la inclusión, a mí con una presentación sobre lenguaje, pronombres y libertad de expresión. Y aprovecho para anunciarles el tema de una edición extraordinaria de estos conversatorios que tendremos el siguiente jueves 23 de junio, antes de que se termine este mes de Pride, donde, todas, donde en todas partes vemos las banderas del arco iris y del azulito y rosita mameluco, para que nos quede claro hasta dónde ha llegado la captura institucional. Entonces, en junio 23, jueves 23, casi todas las lesbianas de WDI México, Adi, Anaís, Elisa, Yadira y Laura, vamos a reflexionar sobre las distintas maneras como lo LGBTTIQ+, daña a las lesbianas. Espero que varias de ustedes se nos unan, será a las 8 de la noche. Eh, bueno, también en el capítulo de formación, en alianza con el grupo, según ya es la 9, la diapositiva 9, en alianza con el grupo feminista oaxaqueño Mujeres de la Sal, hemos tenido programas de lecturas en voz alta de libros fundamentales del feminismo y en particular del feminismo radical. Hemos leído y comentado fragmentos clave de El Segundo Sexo, dos conferencias diferentes de Andrea Dworkin, completito el libro La Industria de la Vagina de Sheila Jeffries en sesiones quincenales de un capítulo por sesión, un capítulo de la herejía lesbiana de Sheila Jeffries, el artículo Heterosexualidad Obligatoria y Existencia Lesbiana de Adrian Rich, unos capítulos del libro A Favor de las Niñas de Elena Giannini Velotti, el capítulo Safo por Cirugía de The Transsexual Empire de Janice Raymond. Estas lecturas en voz alta se complementan con círculos de discusión en torno a esos mismos textos que tienen lugar una semana después. Hacemos también algo de cabildeo. Tenemos alianzas con varias abolicionistas mexicanas y juntas hemos asistido a plantones frente a la Suprema Corte de Justicia de la Nación y la Cámara de Diputados 
para protestar contra los empeños por regular el, el alquiler de vientres y la compraventa de bebés. Hemos presentado la declaración a diferentes diputadas, nos hemos reunido con la Secretaría de las Mujeres de la Ciudad de México, junto con lesbofeministas mexicanas. Al Congreso de la Ciudad de México le presentamos un escrito en el que detallábamos varias razones por las que no debían aprobarse las iniciativas sobre las llamadas infancias trans en esta capital y lanzamos un comunicado de prensa sobre esto mismo. Emitimos también un comunicado de solidaridad con las feministas participantes en un foro de discusión que fue muy atacado por transactivistas. Hemos hecho campañas para sumar más firmantes mexicanas a la declaración. Ahora mismo somos 1.192 y tenemos planes para llegar a 1.500 antes de que termine 2022. Nuestras diseñadoras han hecho un trabajo fabuloso. Se puede apreciar especialmente en nuestro canal de Instagram, para el que creamos siempre contenido muy cuidado. Tenemos varias secciones, una de recomendación de libros, una de efemérides, una llamada ¿Sabías qué? donde contrastamos el trato a las mujeres y el trato a los hombres que se dicen mujeres y exponemos así el doble rasero, unos videos con las preguntas frecuentes en torno a la declaración y más. Asómense a verlo. El pasado 8 de marzo, Nuestras diseñadoras se volvieron a lucir haciendo unos stickers, flyers y carteles descargables para marchas, manifestaciones callejeras y otras acciones feministas. Los encuentran en nuestro Instagram y en un drive al que todas las interesadas pueden tener acceso. Y voy a ponerlo ahora mismo en el chat. Estamos alimentando nuestro nuevo canal de YouTube con los conversatorios feministas ya mencionados, las sesiones del webinario sabatino habladas en español, que ya son varias, así como las que cuentan con subtítulos en nuestro idioma. También tenemos algo de contenido exclusivo. Por ejemplo, una edición pedagógica y subtitulada de unos videos que circularon en redes sobre un intento de linchamiento a un funcionario de rectoría de la Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México. Unos transactivistas exigían a la UNAM que se retirara de las redes el video del foro Aclaraciones Necesarias sobre las Categorías de Sexo y Género por, adivinaron ustedes, supuesta transfobia. Una completa falsedad, como consta a cualquiera que haya escuchado a las ponentes. Medios de comunicación, organismos como el Centro de Investigaciones y Estudios de Género de la propia UNAM, el Consejo para Eliminar y Prevenir la Discriminación de la Ciudad de México y el Consejo Nacional para Prevenir la Discriminación, sin aportar un solo elemento de prueba, se hicieron eco de las infundadas e hiperbólicas acusaciones transactivistas y se sumaron mecánicamente a los gritos y reflexivos de transfobia y discurso de odio, dando muestras de una vergonzosa falta de pensamiento crítico y evidenciando una captura institucional que se ha salido de control. En cambio de ese intento de linchamiento, nadie dijo nada ni un solo medio de comunicación. Si ven el video, que está ahí en nuestra página de YouTube, se van a ir de espaldas, con el nivel de violencia e impunidad, por supuesto. Grupos como la Organización Política Feminista Abolicionista Las Constituyentes han hecho suya la declaración de WDI, pues se dan cuenta de que es una herramienta de gran utilidad para tratar de crear conciencia no solo entre el público en general, sino entre tomadoras de decisiones. El 27 de abril hicieron una lectura del resumen de los nueve artículos de la declaración e invitaron a la contacto de WDI en México a explicar la importancia de los derechos de las mujeres basados en el sexo. Asimismo, hemos sido invitadas a hablar de la declaración en distintos foros, como cuando Elisa Melgarejo participó en el coloquio radical feminista organizado por la Resistencia Radical Estado de México y por Raíces Radicales. WDI México forma parte de la Alianza de Redes Feministas Nacionales, que engloba más de 15 organizaciones feministas a lo largo del país. Desde esta alianza se ha lanzado la campaña Vindicaciones Feministas, Hablemos de los Siete Ejes de Opresión a las Mujeres, con duración de mayo a septiembre de 2022, que está realizando una jornada abolicionista al mes, separada en dos días, viernes en la tarde-noche para ponentes nacionales, y sábado en la mañana para ponentes internacionales. Cada jornada toca los distintos ejes de opresión a las mujeres, violencia, feminicidio, trata, prostitución, pornografía, vientres de alquiler y transgenerismo. 
WDI México será anfitriona de la tercera jornada abolicionista sobre los vientres de alquiler y el discurso de las infancias trans, estos dos mismos dos temas juntos, a realizarse, entre, a realizarse el 15 y el 16 de julio. Y para la cuarta jornada, sobre abolición de los estereotipos de género y generismo, que tendrá lugar el 20 de agosto, Sheila Jeffries es una de las invitadas. Las otras participantes serán las mexicanas Jan María Yauloyo Tulcastro, Natalia Rojas, Lorena García y Estefanía Martínez, la costarricense Alda Facio, la argentina María José Vinetti y la española Alicia Millares. En un ratito más, a las 11 de la mañana, hoy mismo, empezará la segunda parte de la segunda jornada abolicionista sobre erradicación de la trata, la prostitución y la pornografía. Nuestra compañera Sandra Peredo está representando a WDI México en el comité organizador de estas jornadas y gracias a eso tenemos una, una participación importante ahí. Está haciendo, junto con las representantes de otros grupos y colectivas mexicanas, un gran trabajo. Quiero terminar diciendo que estoy muy contenta de formar parte de este maravilloso grupo de voluntarias y agradeciéndoles su entrega y su compromiso. Me llenan de esperanza y de energía para enfrentar lo que se nos viene. Y gracias a todas ustedes por su atención. We have Joya Virgilio. Joya, as I said before, she's going to talk about women and sports, the importance of a gender analysis. Joya is a health economist, a former director in public administration at the Emilia Romagna region. And she was president of Orlando Feminist Association in Bologna from October 2016 to December 2017. She has been a women's movement activist in Bologna and Italy. She's also a former tennis player and an author of two books on women and sport that were published in 2018 and 2021. So we are delighted to have her here with us. L'importanza di un'analisi di genere. Ecco, che intendiamo per analisi di genere? Consideriamo gli stereotipi, le disuguaglianze, gli ostacoli e le discriminazioni che le donne in passato e anche, anche ora incontrano nel parlare e nel emergere dello sport. Poi significa le, le capacità e le abilità professionali perché da eh, invisibilizzate e ehm, diciamo cantate possano eh, avere il loro giusto ruolo in città e nella storia. Ecco, io vi illustrerò questa analisi di genere che ho condotto da 2018 a 2021 ehm, con l'associazione Orlando Feminista. Bologna. Abbiamo fatto un lavoro collettivo attraverso, ehm, diciamo, ehm, con, confronti con atlete professioniste, ehm, allenatri, allenatori, allenatrici, giornaliste, eh, insegnanti sia di scuola che di università, donne che magari non, non praticano sport ma sono interessate ad una eh, frutto di questo lavoro è stata la pubblicazione di un libro, ehm, Women's Sport, riflessi, riflessioni in un'ottica di genere, nel settembre eh, 2018. E abbiamo fatto negli anni successivi delle presentazioni in vari luoghi. L'obiettivo era di coinvolgere sempre maggiore di atlete e di avere un pubblico etneo. Siamo andati in scuole. Eh, siamo andati in eh, università, eh, associazioni, eh, enti locali, eh, eh, vari, vari posti. Ah, alla fine con la mia collega abbiamo deciso di pubblicare questo secondo libro, Women Sport e Gender Analysis, per continuare l'analisi eh, approfondendo e espandendo alcuni temi. Grazie. Eh, ecco, vi presenterò alcuni esempi delle, di eh, atlete che hanno eh, incontrato degli ostacoli e eh, hanno lottato contro stereotipi di genere e poi vi farò vedere anche come 
ehm, delle rappresentazioni sessiste sulle atlete. Ecco, primo Catherine Virginia Switzer, Maratona di Boston 1967. Eh, le donne non potevano partecipare alla Maratona di Boston e questa studentessa eh, universitaria decide di ehm, aggirare questa rete iscrivendosi con solo KV, le iniziali del nome. Le danno il pettorale numero 261 e parte. Come vedete il commissario di gara la ferma. Questa, secondo la Gazzetta dello Sport del 2019, è un'immagine che è il simbolo di tutte le lotte femministe per lo sport. Ecco, questa di nuovo, lei viene strattonata dai giudici di gara. Questa è tremenda questa immagine, però grazie al fidanzato che era un ex giocatore di football americano, lei eh, riesce comunque ad arrivare al traguardo, 4 ore e 20 minuti. Però le donne saranno ammesse alla maratona di Boston solo 5 nel 1975, dove eh, 8 donne parteciperanno e queste in una in recente intervista hanno dichiarato che queste pioniere hanno dichiarato che per scoraggiarle dicevano che sarebbe caduto l'utero e non avrebbero potuto più avere figli. Ecco, questa è una ciclista, Alfonsina Strada, l'unica donna che ha partecipato al Giro d'Italia degli Uomini nel 1924. Lei ha sfidato il pregiudizio della ineguatezza delle donne agli sforzi prolungati. Sono partiti in 90 e arrivati a Milano solo in 30. Lei è fra questi, arnesima fuori tempo massimo, ma ha vinto la sfida. Osserviamola, peli corti, calzoncini corti, abbassati, maglia a mezza manica, niente di femminile, uno scandalo per l'epoca. Ecco, questa Eka si è dovuta travestire da uomo per poter gareggiare. Eh, lei nel 1959 parte ad un campionato vicino a Utica, vicino a New York, un, un antigiudo. Eh, si taglia i capelli cortisti, fascia il suo e eh, combatte, approfittando di un infortunio di un compagno, di, eh, combatte contro un uomo e lo vince e porta la sua squadra a vincere il, ehm, a vincere il, il premio. Adoro, ma gli organizzatori insospettiti, lei una donna, lei annuisce e le viene strappata dal collo la medaglia. Lei quindi va in Giappone, da qui il nome Rena Kaji, e va al Kodokan, che è il quartier generale dello judo. Diventa la prima donna ad, a, a allenare degli uomini. Vedete la foto, no? Vedete la foto. Ecco, lei nel 1980 a sue spese organizza a New York il primo campionato femminile di Do e ehm, a cui partecipano, riesce anche nel 1988 alle Olimpiadi a introdurre il Judo come disciplina dimostrativa. Ma le donne potranno partecipare alle Olimpiadi come Judo, come Judoche, solo nel 1992, ben 28 anni dopo, i maschi, loro partecipare nel 1964. E come sono rappresentate le atlete? Questa è Lea Pericoli, una grande tenista dal 1952 al 1975, a Wimbledon, è andata, era, aveva un curriculum professionale, ma veniva sempre ricordata in questo modo, cioè le famose culotte di pizzo che imparano ehm, i cronisti. Cioè nonostante fosse una bravissima profeta, veniva sempre eh, ritratta in questo modo. Tant'è vero che un giornalista ha detto, come, ironicamente, come mai non la guardano mai in faccia? E ritrevano sempre il lato della tennista. Ecco, ancora come sono presentate le atleti. Siamo alle Olimpiadi di eh, Rio de Janeiro nel 1905. Questo è il titolo di un giornale italiano che dice 
tiro con la, il trio delle cicciottelle sfiora il miracolo olimpico. Sono tre ragazze che non sono riuscite per poco a vincere la di bronzo e vengono svalorizzate dalla stampa in questo modo, con questo aggettivo cicciottelle, che per un uomo non si direbbe mai. Questa che vedete nella foto, nelle Olimpiadi recenti di Tokyo del, del 2021, ha, ehm, ha vinto nella gara individuale finalmente il bronzo, ma ancora è stata attaccata dalla stampa perché lei in un'intervista ha detto che aveva una relazione sentale con una, con una collega. E allora la stampa ha dato più lievo col clamore a questa notizia, la sua relazione sentimentale, anziché sottolineare la sua vittoria perché prima c'era italiana ad, ad andare nel, nel podio olimpico. Ecco, qui abbiamo le... Allora, voi sa dovete sapere che in Italia il, la prima squadra di calcio è stata fatta nel eh, 1933 e qui sono le vignette satiriche dell'epoca. Eh, questo esperimento eh, durò solo otto mesi, dopodiché il regime fascista impedì a queste ragazze di giocare. Guardiamo la, 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 la vignetta numero uno. Sinistra... A, a, a destra eh, come sono intanto il titolo arrivano le calciatrici è già ironico allora la calciatrice mi informa una, eh, una giocatrice sembra che tiri la palla come, come un gioco elegante se fosse un passo da. poi vediamo la, la portiera che viene sostenuta da una portinaia con la scopa addirittura poi vediamo in alto a destra vediamo eh, aspetti del, del duro gioco in fondo a destra un fallo fuori campo andiamo alla 2 se è la solita frase che viene detta per impedire alle donne di giocare si torna a dire con insistenza che il football non è un gioco rinne. e dopo ironicamente c'è la vignetta delle tre calciatrici che dicono beh ora che troviamo presto marito Ecco, queste sono le milanesi, a destra le vedete, eh, giocano con le lunghe per non il regime e c'è una didascalia molto cattiva. Donne calciste, ci, ci trova forse dell'estetica il lettore? Noi no, e ci dispiace per le belle milanesine. A, a, di fianco invece, per fortuna, ci sono quattro delle calciatrici che vengono nominate con il loro nome e con il ruolo che gioca in campo. Abbiamo in Italia purtroppo un'iconografia sessista in generale, quindi che non riguarda solo le sportive, ma in generale è molto, è molto diffusa. Questo è il caso di una sedere bronzo della spigolatrice. Nel eh, settembre 2021, quindi recente, è stata inaugurata questa statua nel sud d'Italia, a Sapri, vicino Salerno. E questa abbracciante, vedete tutti i notabili, tutti i maschi in adorazione di questa statua seminuda. Questa era una bracciante a cui fu dedicata una poesia nel 1858 dove pare che la leggenda avesse visto lei un, lo, lo sbarco dei eh, 300 giovani rivoluzionari con Carlo Pisacane e abbia assistito anche al eh, massacro di questi giovani da parte dell'esercito borbonico. Ecco, così vi ricordata purtroppo. Altra iconografia sessista, nella mia città, Bologna, monumento alla lavaia. Cioè Bologna, intitolata capitale della cultura nel 2000, ancora nel centro, fa mostra, bella mostra di sé che non si capisce veramente la, 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 lo scopo. Ecco. Altra immagine sessista. Eh, monumenti alle giornaliste, l'Alpi e Maria Grazia Cutuli. Queste sono eh, assassinate in zona di guerra rispettivamente a 33 e a 39 anni. Così vengono, vengono, vengono ritratte. C'è un attivista femminista che uh, dice sembra che si sorreggano, diano, diano manforza, forse perché si, si accolgono di completamente nude e poi... Eh, sempre sul reale con l'altra mano eh, sostengono un rotolo di carta che sono scottex di formato familiare 
Dopo questo dopo questa, um, monumento, spedizione dalle donne per chiedere che vengano eliminate queste statue in vari comuni italiani e sostituite da statue magari realizzate di queste donne che diano rispetto e dignità a queste donne. Ecco, questa si può celebrare in bellezza. Questa è una bella foto, è una grande attività, Gabri Gabric, che eh, qui è l'origine di, di Berlino nel 1936 e incita le compagne di Spra. Eh, ve la faccio vedere perché lei, a lei nel settembre del 2001 è stato intitolato uno stadio di atletica, unico caso in Italia, uno stadio dedicato alla donna. Nel 1900, ai giochi di Londra nel 1948 ha, ha stabilito record nazionali in getto del peso, lancio del disco, lancio del giavellotto. Era una grande atleta, è stata anche di educazione fisica, è stata una grande giornalista sportiva ed è giusto che quindi venga dedicata a lei questo. Ah, vi ricordo che sempre nell'agosto del 2020 è stato alle calciatrici del 1933 di cui parlavo prima è stato intitolato un parco cittadino alle, alle calciate 933. Quindi concludo dicendo che la toponomast ci può veramente aiutare per dare riconoscimento alle donne. Grazie. And now we're moving to our next speaker, Maureen O'Hara. Maureen is going to uh, present, is going to explain um, her last um, article called Gender Identity Theories Capture of Criminal Justice Institutions in England and Wales, which is descriptive enough. And I said it's our very own Maureen O'Hara because she's a co-author of the declaration. She's a legal academic and feminist activist living in Ireland, in England, sorry. And she's currently researching the impact of gender identity ideology on the criminal justice system in England and Wales. So welcome, Maureen, over to you. I'm going to be focusing on England and Wales because there, there are three separate jurisdictions in the UK and they're all slightly different um, in relation to some of their laws at least, although there are some common pieces of legislation as well. Um, and as Amparo said, I'm basing my talk on a publication that I recently wrote for the Think Tank Policy Exchange, which looks at um, transgenderism and policy capture in the criminal justice system. It looks at four key services, the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, who are the state prosecutor in England and Wales, the courts and the prison service. And you can download it from Policy Exchange's website. It's free to download if you want to look at it. I spoke about what's happening with the courts in a WDI seminar earlier this year. And I also talked about the Crown Prosecution Service or CPS. Uh, to some extent as well. So today I'm going to focus on the police and on the prison service mainly. I say a little bit about the law in England and Wales. And in fact, this is UK wide, what I'm going to say now. Um, this, the Gender Recognition Act 2004 makes provisions enabling individuals to obtain a gender recognition certificate, which changes their gender or sex, legislation is very ambiguous about which it's talking about for most purposes but not for all purposes and they have to meet certain criteria specified in the act in order to obtain a gender recognition certificate self-declaration of gender identity hasn't been incorporated into law in England and Wales and the government have expressly said in 2020 that they weren't going to incorporate it after a public consultation about it. But in recent years, self-declaration of gender identity, so-called, has been adopted as policy by all of the key criminal justice institutions, um, even though it's not aligned with the law. And they now all effectively subscribe to the ideological belief that individuals' subjective sense of gender identity should take precedence over their biological sex. The adoption by criminal justice institutions of this belief appears to have come about largely as a result of policy capture because it's not aligned with the law and it's been adopted without any public scrutiny or consultation with the public. Now, that isn't to say that the GRA isn't a problem in and of itself, but 
any system because any system which treats men as if they're women undermines women's sex-based rights but self-declaration of gender identity creates additional problems and makes the overall situation much worse trans identifying male suspects and convicted offenders are now being recorded as female by the police and the crime prosecution service their preferred pronouns are being used in court and some are being housed in women's prisons when they're convicted of crimes. And that matters because sex is a key factor in criminality and particularly in relation to sexual and violent offences, the overwhelming majority of which are committed by men. It's impossible to understand the nature of sexual and violent crime without understanding the ways in which it's shaped by the wider social context of power relationships between the sexes. And accurate information about the sex of suspects and offenders is crucial to the development of law and policy aimed at reducing and trying to prevent sexual and violent crime at a societal level. And it's also crucial to the identification, investigation and prosecution of sexual and violent crime at an individual level. The acknowledgement of the significance of biological sex is also crucial to the safety, dignity and privacy of female prisoners and detainees. And by detainees, I mean women who are detained by the police service while they're investigating crimes. So to illustrate what I'm saying about sex being a key factor in criminality is probably not news to anybody here, but I'm just going to talk a little bit about male patterns of offending as identified in England and Wales by state organizations. And this is a quotation from Jo Phoenix, who's a professor of criminology. Um, and she says that sex is the single strongest predictor of criminality and criminalization. Since criminal statistics were first collected in the mid 1850s, males make up around 80% of those arrested, prosecuted and convicted of crime. Violent crime is most commonly committed by males. This remains the case regardless of stated gender identity. And Ministry of Justice figures support that. They published uh, figures in 2020, which showed that 98% of those prosecuted for sexual offences in England and Wales in 2019 were male. And Ministry of Justice data published in 2019 found that 98% of those convicted for sexual offences against children in 2017 were males. Now that those kinds of percentages can be seen in all of the research, they vary to some extent, but always the percentage of sex offenders, whether it's against adults or against children who are male are in the 90s and usually the high 90s in any research. Um, that I've looked at. A significant majority of those prosecuted for non-sexual forms of offences against the person are also men. And data published by the Office for National Statistics in 2021 for the three-year period ending in March 2020 showed that 93% of those convicted of homicide were male. In England and Wales overall, males generally make up 95% of the prison population. So they're overwhelmingly the perpetrators of criminal offences, particularly violent and sexual offences. And the kinds of offences women tend to commit largely are less, much less serious offences, offences against property, shoplifting, um, relatively minor offences. Majority of those who were sexually assaulted are female. And for the year ending March 20, the crime survey for England and Wales estimated that 618,000 women and 155,000 men aged 16 to 74 had experienced sexual assault, including attempted sexual assault in the previous year. That's a prevalence rate of three in 100 women and one in 100 men. Now they could well be underestimates. I generally thought that the uh, amount of sexual violence that is occurring is underestimated by most um, of the measures of it. In research published in 2021, 
Karika Karsner and Professor Liz Kelly estimated that 15% of girls and 5% of boys experience some form of sexual abuse before the age of 16. And that sexual abuse, as the previous figures show, is overwhelmingly committed by males. And the picture is no different in relation to trans identifying males. Um, so figures presented by the Ministry of Justice in the case of Crown on the application of FDJ and Secretary of State for Justice, which I'll talk about a bit more later, suggested that data collected across the prison estate in March, April 2019 showed that 46.69% of trans identifying male prisoners had convictions for sexual offences. By comparison, data for 2020 showed that fewer than 20% of male prisoners in the general male prison population were serving sentences for sexual offences. And on 14th of January 2022, the Justice Minister, Victoria Atkins, replied to a parliamentary question, and her reply indicated that the proportion of trans-identifying males in the prison estate who were currently serving sentences for sexual offences was in the region of 60%. The figures weren't precise because the Ministry of Justice wasn't certain how many trans-identifying males held in the women's estate at the time had convictions for sexual offences, but they believed it was fewer than five. One of the reasons their figures are not accurate is because they don't keep accurate and detailed records of those with the GRC, Gender Recognition Certificate. Um, so the majority of trans-identifying sex offenders are held in the male estate, but some are held in the female estate and that varies at, at different points in time. There's a range of possible explanations for the high proportion of trans-identifying male offenders who've committed sexual offences. Those figures don't necessarily indicate that they are more likely to commit sexual offences than other males, generally, we don't know. But they do clearly indicate that many trans-identifying males retain male patterns of criminality. So that's one of the reasons why it's important not to record them as female in crime statistics. Current police guidance on the recording of sex and gender says that where there's doubt as to whether a person should be treated as being male or female, that person should be asked to indicate their preference and treated in accordance with that preference, except where there are grounds to believe that the expressed preference doesn't accurately reflect their predominant lifestyle. So if a man who was in the eyes of the police, living as a male, wearing male clothes, using a male name just before being arrested, for example, and there was evidence of that said he was female, they might nevertheless record him as a male because they wouldn't regard him as living as a woman. If they did regard him as living as a woman because of his dress or the name that he used, whatever else it might be, they would record him as female according to his preference. And the person's gender, as established under this guidance, must be recorded in their custody record. So the data recorded by individual police forces affects data recording within the whole of the criminal justice system because it gets transferred onto other data management systems. And misleading data created by police forces is particularly concerning in relation to the recording of data about offences which are predominantly committed by biological males violent sexual offences. Inaccurate data about patterns of sexual and violent offending creates a significant impediment to the development of effective law and policy aimed at the elimination of violence against women and girls. The Crown Prosecution Service approach to the recording of so-called gender identity is essentially the same as the police approach. And the result of that is that increasingly rapists are being recorded as being women. The offence of rape in English law can only be committed by a male because it involves penetration with a penis without consent. So it cannot be committed by a woman. But it's being recorded as having been committed by women by both the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. And CPS data published by the Office of National Statistics in 2018 showed that between 2012 and 2018, a total of 436 people, i.e. men, who were prosecuted for rape were recorded as women. 
And the proportion of rape defendants classified as women during this seven year period varied between 1.2% and 1.8% for each of those years. Recently, in April this year, the Home Office proposed a new policy um, on police recording of data about cis suspects and um, victims of crime, and said that they, they should be recorded on the basis of their sex as recorded on their birth certificate, or on the basis of their sex as recorded on their gender recognition certificate. And that gender identity where someone doesn't have a gender recognition certificate should be recorded separately if that is different from their biological sex or their legal sex, which is if they have a GRC, it would be generally referred to as their legal sex. If that new approach becomes standardized at a national level, police forces will be required to record trans identifying male suspects and offenders who have a GRC as women and they'll lose the discretion that they currently have to record their biological sex. Individual police forces at the moment have a lot of discretion. Um, they operate quite differently from each other in some respects. If that happens, then misleading data will continue to be produced by police forces. And not only that, but their data will be replicated in other criminal justice data. Another new recent development relates to police searching policy. Specifically, the searching of detainees held by the police by trans identifying police officers. A new policy was published in December last year, but it wasn't made public. And this is the essence of the policy, which says, Employers, by which they mean the police force, should treat people in accordance with their lived gender identity, whether or not they have a GRC, and should not ask transgender colleagues if they have a GRC or new birth certificate. Accordingly, with regards to the issue of searching, chief officers are advised to recognise the status of transgender colleagues from the moment they transition, considered to be the point to which they present in the gender with which they identify. Thus, once a transgender colleague has transitioned, they will search persons of the same gender as their own lived gender. And this policy states that this applies to strip searches, which, is searched, which are searches involving the removal of clothing other than outer clothing. For example, when police officers are looking for a weapon, or something else they're searching for, and intimate searches. Intimate searches are very rarely carried out by police officers. They're usually carried out by medical professionals, but police officers do carry them out. And what they involve is examination of bodily orifices. So this policy is saying that trans identified police officers can search female detainees and can carry out both strip searches and intimate searches on female detainees. The Police and Criminal Evidence Act and its codes of practice, which govern police conduct in most areas, specifically say that any search involving the removal of more than outer clothing um, should be made by an officer as a, of the same sex as the person being searched. And that search may not be made in the presence of anyone of the opposite sex, unless the detainee specifically requests that another person should be there who is of the other sex. The new policy, which would allow males to carry out strip searches and intimate searches, um, was not made public, as I've said. It only came to light following research by Kathy Larkman, who's a retired police superintendent, and she wrote to the College of Policing, the Police Federation and the National Police Chiefs Council in December last year, asking for clarification about the searching policy in relation to trans-identifying police officers. She eventually received a copy of this policy in April this year, and she passed it on to a national newspaper. I read about it in that newspaper and I obtained it from a journalist at the paper. It has not been made public. I can't find it on any police websites. So it's been brought in under the radar and it allows trans-identifying males to search women intimately 
and to carry out strip searches. And according to the policy document, that's already policy in some police forces. If a woman refuses to be searched by a trans identifying male, the police force will generally ask someone else to carry out the search. However, the policy says, if the person being searched objects to being searched by any colleague, it may be advisable for them to be replaced by another team member to search that person. This is regularly done in practice, regardless of the reasons for objection, to de-escalate any potential conflict. If the refusal is based on discriminatory views, consideration should be given for the incident to be recorded as a non-crime hate incident, unless the circumstances amount to a recordable crime. A non-crime hate incident is an incident which is subjectively perceived by the victim or any other person as motivated wholly or partly by hostility or prejudice towards a particular social group, but which doesn't amount to a criminal offence. They're recorded by the police and the records are kept by the police. Um, there's no consideration in the policy of the potentially traumatic effects on a female detainee of being strip searched or intimately searched by a male police officer. No mention is made of the rights to safety, privacy or dignity of the detainees involved. And the only potential motivation for objecting to such a search, which the National Police Chiefs Council recognise, is the holding of what they call discriminatory views. Where a person who is not authorised to carry out a search on a suspect under the provisions of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act does so, that amounts to assault or battery in law. It's a criminal offence. And where the search is a strip search or intimate search, it can amount to a sexual assault. The extent to which someone detained by the police could give valid consent to this kind of search is questionable under any circumstances because of the power differentials involved in that situation. But free and informed consent could clearly not be given in circumstances where the police can record the refusal to be searched by a trans-identifying male as a non-crime hate incident. The NPCC guidance amounts to the police instituting a practice which would normally constitute sexual assault. And arguably, it could constitute degrading treatment, contrary to Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Article 3 is an absolute right, should never be um, contravened in any circumstances, as well as a violation of detainees' rights to privacy, privacy and private life under Article 8. It's clear from the way the policy document is written that the NPCC are aware that it's open to legal challenge, which presumably why they try to keep it hidden from the public. I was shocked when I read it after seeing the article about it in the newspaper. I was really shocked by it. The prison service searching policy um, in relation to prisons of the GRC, so trans identifying males with the GRC, must be searched in accordance with their required gender regardless of their bodily characteristics, unless they prefer otherwise. And some do, and some reach an agreement otherwise. But what that policy means is that female prison officers are required to search trans-identifying males who have a GRC, some of whom are sex offenders and some of whom retain male genitalia and may well be aroused by the search. Um, currently, trans-identifying male prisoners are not permitted to search female prisoners. And that includes prison officers who have a GRC, but the prison service is considering changing this policy to enable prison officers with a GRC to search prisoners of their acquired gender. In other words, to search women prisoners. And intimate searches are much more common in prisons than they are in use against detainees in the police station. So it raises the same issues um, as the police searching policy. The fact that they have a GRC will make no difference to female prisoners' experience of the search. As I said, some trans-identifying males are housed in the female prison estate, not all of them. The policy is that all prisoners are initially allocated to the part of the prison estate which corresponds with their legal gender. 
Um, so those with the GRC are initially allocated to the women's prisons. Subject to the approval of a complex case board who conduct risk assessments, prisoners who identify as transgender but don't hold a GRC may be placed in the part of the estate which corresponds to their self-declared gender identity, in other words, be placed in the female prison estate. A trans-identifying prisoner with a GRC who is biologically male must be placed um, in the female estate, except for exceptional circumstances, when they can be placed um, in the male prison estate where they're held separately from other prisoners. The exceptional circumstances would usually be where they represent a very high degree of risk to female prisoners if they were to be housed in the female estate. But the policy doesn't state that a previous history of sexual offending against women is an exceptional circumstance for this purpose. And in practice, trans-identifying male sex offenders with and without GRCs are placed in women's prisons. In 2021, this policy was challenged in the case of FDJ versus Secretary of State for Justice, which I mentioned earlier. And the claimant was a woman who said she'd been sexually assaulted by a trans-identifying male prisoner with a GRC while she was held in Bronzefield Women's Prison. And she based her claim on two grounds. The first, that the policies are unlawful because they indirectly discriminate against women, contrary to Article 14 of the European Convention, which prohibits discrimination, in, um, along with Article 3, which is the prohibition of torture and inhuman and degrading treatment, and or Article 8, which is the right to respect for private and family life. And the second ground was essentially that in formulating the policies, the Ministry of Justice had failed to take account of the provisions in the Equality Act 2010, which enable single sex spaces to exclude all males, including trans identifying males with a GRC, provided that the exclusion pursues a legitimate aim and does so in a proportionate way. And FDJ argued that that is the policy that the prison service should institute and not doing so is discriminatory against female prisoners. The claim failed and the court found that the prison service is not required to apply the Equality Act exceptions. And they also said that the policy was lawful essentially because it requires risk assessments to be made when deciding where trans-identifying male prisoners are going to be placed. This is what the judge said. This is the leading judgment. Lord Justice Holroyd said, I readily accept the proposition that some and perhaps many women prisoners may suffer fear and acute anxiety if required to share prison accommodation and facilities with a transgender woman who has male genitalia and that their fear and anxiety may be increased if that transgender woman has been convicted of sexual or violent offences against women. I accept Miss Monaghan's submissions, she was the um, advocate for FDJ, that the taking by the defendant of steps which increase the risk of Article 3 mistreatment of women prisoners is within the ambit of Article 3. However, the subjective concerns of women prisoners are not the only concerns which the defendant had to consider in developing the policies. He also had to take into account the rights of transgender women in the prison system. Um, the judge didn't explain precisely what these rights of trans-identifying prisoners are, but it can probably be assumed he meant what he went on to call their right to live in their chosen gender. When women are incarcerated with biological males who've already been convicted of committing sexual offences, their fear of sexual assault is objectively justifiable. And this characterization of their fears as subjective trivializes them and frames them as objectively lesser concerns. They're concerns about the rights of trans-identifying male prisoners. He didn't explain exactly what the right to live in their chosen gender consists of, or precisely why they needed to be placed in women's prisons in order to exercise this right. Trans-identifying males who are held in men's prisons are held separately from other men and they're treated in accordance with the women's prison regime. So for example, they can wear women's clothes. 
and makeup and so forth. And all male offenders who identify as transgender could potentially be held in the male estate in this way, or they could be housed in specialist units without female prisoners being put at risk of sexual assault and experiencing the fear and anxiety associated with that risk. What prevents this appears to be the perceived need for women prisoners to validate the gender identity of trans identifying males. And that's a theme throughout the judgment. Unlike biological sex, as we all know, gender identity is essentially performative. We retain our biological sex regardless of the clothes we wear or the adornments we wear or the people we're associating with. We just are male or female. But the performance of gender identity requires an audience. And the audience, an audience of women appears to be perceived as more validating than an audience of other trans-identifying males because they could perform their gender identity with each other, but that doesn't seem to be sufficient. They need in the view of the court and they need in the view of the Ministry of Justice to be placed with women in order for their, to be able to affirm their gender identity. The claimant in this case, who um, in a, a newspaper article went by the name of Amy Jones, was interviewed about her experiences in prison shortly after the judgment. She was out of prison by that time. And she said that while still in prison, she was transferred from Bronzefield to Danview Women's Prison and discovered that Jay, the person she alleged sexually assaulted her when she was in Bronzefield, had also been transferred there. Jay was in E-Wing, which is a special unit for trans-identifying males who are assessed as too dangerous to women to be housed in the main women's prison, but were not seen as meeting the criteria for allocation to a men's prison. So they have a separate unit, but they have uh, specified times when they mix with female prisoners, which is supposed to take place under supervision. And she said about this, I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. They moved me for my own protection. And then I ended up back in the same prison as this person who had sexually assaulted me. Quite a few women were scared of Jay because she would rub up against them in the dinner queue with an erect penis. She would wear very tight trousers, which made it obvious she had male genitalia. The prison officers protected her more than they did us. They were terrified of being accused of transphobia. And that sort of behavior by trans-identifying males um, drawing attention to their penis, walking around with erect penises, walking around naked, making sure women see them in showers, etc., has been described by a lot of female prisoners and also by former prison governors who've observed it as well. Um, Another issue, and this is one which affects women's ability to talk about their experiences of sexual assault and um, the imposition by male prisoners um, on women, which are behaviours which are not directly assault, but which are in designed to intimidate them, is the compelled use of preferred pronouns. Um, female prisoners are punished if they use male pronouns for trans-identifying male prisoners. This is a quote from the Justice Minister, Lord Wilson, who says that incidents where a prisoner uses incorrect pronouns for another prisoner will be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. If an officer deems it appropriate to place a prisoner on report, the rule against using threatening, abusive, or insulting words or behavior may apply. An offence motivated by another person's protected characteristic under the Equality Act, gender reassignment is a protected characteristic, is an aggravating factor and may merit referral to an independent adjudicator. Under prison discipline policy, cases are only referred to an independent adjudicator who has to be um, a, a district judge or a deputy district judge if it's thought that if the person is found guilty, additional days in prison um, may be ordered. So what this amounts to is the imposition of criminal penalties for misgendering, which is not a criminal offence. 
It's compelled speech in its most authoritarian form in this jurisdiction. And as with the compelled use of preferred pronouns in court, its imposition in prisons can have the effect of hindering women's ability to describe assaults because it robs them of the language with which to do so. This is a quotation from Kate Coleman, who runs the uh, organization Keep Prison Single Sex. Um, about an interview that she carried out with a former female prisoner. And she said, she told me that female offenders generally don't complain because there's simply no point. If a woman did make a complaint about the actions of a male prisoner, she would have to use female pronouns. But it wasn't a woman who was aggressive to her or threatened her or assaulted her or showed her his penis. It just wasn't. The language she's compelled to use means that she is forced to describe an incident that involved a woman. She is forced to agree that this prisoner is a woman, is female. So the case of FDJ didn't succeed in changing the policy. There have been a number of attempts to change the policy in Parliament. Um, and during the recent passage of the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill, there were two amend amendments tabled designed to change the policy, both of them failed. However, the Prime Minister in an interview in April uh, said, women should have spaces, whether it's in hospital or prisons or changing rooms, which are dedicated to women. It remains to be seen whether these comments result in any action. Ministers frequently make these type of comments and there's nothing comes of them. Um, but currently policies within the criminal justice institutions which treat biological males as if they're women are causing harm to victims of crime, to some of the staff working criminal justice institutions and to female detainees and prisoners. They're rooted in an extreme ideology in which claims to rights based on gender identity take precedence over the rights of others and particularly the sex-based rights of women even where this involves denying women's rights to safety. Most of these policies are not aligned with the law and have developed in the absence of public scrutiny or democratic consensus. Some of those which are aligned with the law, such as the requirement that female police and prison officers must carry out searches of males with a GRC, demonstrate a fundamental tension between women's sex-based rights to safety, dignity and privacy and the rights conferred on, conferred on trans identifying males by GRC. So as I said earlier, the GRC is creating part of the problem, but more widely, the adoption by all of these agencies of self-declaration of gender identity is creating a number of problems which could be solved without a change in the law, which isn't likely at the moment, if they stopped applying self-declaration. It wouldn't solve the problems created by the GRC, or by the GRA, I should say, but it would solve a lot of the problems that are currently taking place and the ways in which women's sex-based rights are being undermined by criminal justice agencies. Thank you.